90 for Chill, the podcast, proudly presents to you Ali's Accessories Shop on Etsy's Trash Feature Review. Especially when you're well off, know it or not. London town ends up being a nice little... kind of wish I had that trauma early on. I know, it's something you shouldn't. But it's a fun... London town's a fun uh, film. Uh, try, paying homage to Joe Stromler's legacy and The Clash. It's adequately directed. The uh, music numbers look great. I love the politics. And it's kind of sad, especially since this was released right after the Brexit vote. And you realize we really kind of need to listen to bands like The Clash to get over our identity politics and racism, I suppose. It's sad to see the motherland be just as bad off as the states were. And, you know, since they have Boris Johnson, probably going to stay that way for a while. I don't know. That's just a political rant. I'm partial to the music. Now, I do applaud the great acting from our uh, cast of Daniel Huddleston as Shay, a kid who's resentful of his dad, making him learn classical music in Wanstead, England, and bad-mouthing his mom, who's still trying to pursue a music career in London. Uh, after a piano-moving accident leaves our character Shay's father uh, in the hospital for weeks at a time, losing the family business and the on the verge of losing the family business our main character with the assistance of vivian pardon if i don't know her name immediately she actually only best known probably in the states as young cersei from season five of game of thrones so sweet little cute little love story a great homage to joe strummer really i don't know if he ever wanted to be idolized but Hey, if it's as charming as this feature was, I don't think he'd care too much. Little Hand says it's time to rock and roll. Bring the noise. And this is take four of the intro for 90 for Chill, the podcast, episode 23, The Poetic Critic's Cinematic Chicken Salad, because I bring my older sister on, The Poetic Critic, from Letterboxd to just, you know, share her wisdom when it comes to cinematic history. She's somebody who needs to be utilized more by movie fans who want to do podcasts, really. She's not quick with the jokes, but if she's got a joke, she's going to nail out of the park, which is basically what I think comedy is all about. Just, I don't know. I say that being a National League baseball fan, like in small ball, and I just said, Hey, you need a home run hitter. But I'll digress on that. I don't think I've even dropped my name. My name is Russ Stevens. You can find me under the handle Cool Movies Darth. I do abbreviate that on Letterboxd and Twitter to, to CM Darth. You know, I got enough bitterness with Morbidly Macabre podcast being disappointed that 
I said they didn't really know the wrestling business. Uh, I still shared their link to that episode about Chris Benoit. So it's not like I didn't want people to hear it. I just said if you're a wrestling fan who doesn't want to shout at their radio when they get something, they just don't understand something about the wrestling business, it might not be for you. I won't go into how their five-minute rant on their podcast, but hey, at least you know I'm listening, folks. And with that said, I could definitely use the constructive criticism from you guys alongside those five-star reviews on Google Podcasts and Apple Podcasts and those subscriptions. I hope uh, we entertain you this week. I hope you might learn some stuff. As I say, Rory, the poetic critic, is really the smartest cinematic mind, I think, at least when it comes to the history of cinema in the heart of Illinois, all the way from Bloomington to Gales. I don't really know what the northern boundaries of it would be. Don't stray off too far north or south of 74, I guess is the lesson there. Well, thanks for coming back to the podcast. Again, I'd love to hear from you, and I'd love to have you on the show. If you've got a movie you want to talk about, you've got a theme you think we can work with, you got an actor you want to talk about, a director, I would love to talk to you about it. Just drop me an email. The, the address is rustabus07 at gmail.com, or find me on Twitter, send me a direct message. I'm primarily using at CatBusRuss. I do sit on any cool-sounding handle. I think that relates to me. Thanks for coming back. We're going to give you some Kubrick. We're going to give you some Alan. We're going to talk vampires. We're going to talk about Disney and possibly critical race theory. So I hope you enjoy again. Have fun. And for those who are wondering why this episode is titled The Poetic Critic's cinematic chicken salad it's because i can count on my older sister to turn chicken poo into chicken salad mayo free and i'm cool with that back to United for Chill the Podcast. This is your host, Cool Movies Darth. That would be CN Darth on Letterbox, better known as Russ Stevens. I think mom and dad appreciate me getting that name out there. Then mom looks at the bumper or stickers on my car and might change her mind, but I digress. And this week we're just gonna go and see what happens with the poetic critic on Letterbox. That's the poetic critic, all one word correct yes all right and you know me um waiting for the spiral dvd slash blu-ray release so i can drop that episode then i've been trying to get people to get aboard a vampire episode but 
despite everybody liking it on Facebook, giving me those little heart icons on Twitter, nobody's stepping up for it. Uh, it's a little frustrating, so we're just going to see what's happening with Rory here. Neither of us really paid much attention to Cable anymore, I believe. No, not something. really. Let's see. She's she's supplying the Disney Plus. I'm supplying the HBO Max. I don't know. Maybe my f fire stick up in the kids' bedroom, the grandkids' bedroom, the guest room, what have you, might let me access the Criterion channel, but I doubt I can pop that code at home. But, you know, when you spend a year, not 100 bucks on a service, I can understand you're not sharing that password. <laughs> right. Okay. But with that said, though, I just got an advertisement on YouTube yesterday saying HBO Max now has tiers. Basically, you can, for $10, you can just deal with advertisements. I'm just used to paying 15 bucks for HBO Max, so I don't really see myself decreasing to a lower tier. What would your opinion on that be? I know a lot of people just can't stand commercials anymore. I have, I'm very happy with my subscriptions to Disney and Criterion, and I don't have to deal with ads on either of those. If I were paying, the one paying for HBO Max, rather than sharing it with you the way I shared Disney Plus with you, I probably would pay a little extra to go ad-free. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, I don't really mind when Tubi does it runs a few ads. Well, it all depends on what the ads are for when it comes to Tubi, since it's a Fox-owned property, and well, they, they are very quick to... I mean, look, being a Democrat is not a problem. You can't make your news advertisements like, and the Democrats. I think you just blew your cover. I mean, at least MSNBC and CNN basically say, you know what's probably true? <laughs> See, I'm saying properly true. I don't want to offend my right-wing friends. I mean, that's probably the most fun thing I've had on Facebook recently is putting an insurrection meme up and having two, um, two, actually three of my professional wrestling friends who actually made a name for themselves in the business argue over it. Well, let's go back to the vampire thing because I missed that you were interested in doing a vampire episode. Mm-hmm. Now, I, could, I don't think I could talk about enough movies for a full episode if we were going to talk about vampires. Well, you could always go with the concept, as I, you know, I've been pretty much doing recently uh, uh, with uh, the bitter Mitch uh, from Morbidly Macabre. Not going to air up our little rivalry and how we're ruining champagne friendliness on the podcast, but uh, we just did Dance of the Dead. And made two hours out of that. And then we have uh, my recent one with Andrew Titi, a uh, stand-up comedian from the Champagne area, which was basically a way of just talking about Ghostbusters. And, you know, maybe we'll get back to... Well, I'll probably try to get back to him once Afterlife comes out. So basically I'm out of content for five months from what I can tell. Uh, I digress, though. I mean... When it comes to vampire movies, I don't know. Do you have a particular favorite one, or do you just no, I don't watch I don't enough? Thing. I don't think I have a particular favorite. I've seen plenty of different ones over the years. There are still a few blind spots. I haven't yet gotten around to any of the Hammer, famous Hammer Dracula movies. Though I've worked my way through much of the Universal cycle. Mm -hmm. I saw it the other day, because I have been working through 80s movies, I did see The Lost Boys. Mm -hmm. It didn't really do anything for me. So, Joel Schumacher at his finest would be Batman Forever for you? No, I don't think so. I don't know oh, if don't there is Batman a best. don't say Batman and Robin. <laughs> no, I'm weird. I don't know if I've ever seen something I'd call best. What? Uh, but, I mean, did he direct The Wiz or just wrote that? No, he only wrote it. Sidney Lumet did The Wiz. Oh, great. No, 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 I, that's some trivia I did not need. Well, let me bring this around again. They originally, for The Wiz, they wanted John Batten, mm. who, who would have been coming right off of Saturday Night Fever. But he kind of lost faith in the project. I think it, I, it may or may not have had to do with how uh, Barry Gordy was, because Motown was co-producing the mm -hmm. film with Universal, was pushing to get Diana Ross in as the lead. Right. And in any case, Badham decided he didn't want to do the project, and instead 
He stuck with Universal, but he did the Dracula remake in 79 instead. With Frank Langella. Okay, alright, I was about to say, dang, that's a blind spot for me. That's probably one of Mom's favorite Dracula's. It's I mean, a worthwhile movie. Christopher I Lee is going to be her favorite, but... Batman's Dracula is good. Hmm. It's an interesting take. It, I do agree with those who say it doesn't quite work as a straight horror movie because of the approach, but it is interesting as one of the first romanticized vampire movies. Oh, okay. And... In that it's not just that the vampire is sexy, but it's trying to romanticize the character somewhat. Oh, right. Well, I... It's also got the most slept-on John Williams score ever, perhaps. That and The Accidental Tourist. Well, with um, Frank Langella, sadly, I am a Masters of the Universe kid, so I, otherwise all I really know is old Frank Langella. So it's... Was he actually in that um, Edward Furlong movie about video games? Brain Scan? Yeah. Yes, he was. Okay. Yeah, that's one I still had to give a chance. I mean, it's just so silly. Basically anything with Edward Furlong after Terminator 2, which really was his first film, is kind of silly. <laughs> Green Hornet. I mean, Terminator Darth Fate has his dark fate, had his likeness. But thinking about... I had something on my mind... Um, yeah, well, I guess, um, when it comes to vampire movies, the one I'm really big on from the 80s, despite I love two of the three Lost Boys movies, and I think that's more of just how you look back on the 80s, I guess. You being a little older in the 80s probably was immediately over the concept of slasher horror that broke out and such. Like, why would you enjoy that type stuff? I mean, I'm sure you've seen Halloween. No, I have not gotten around to that just oh, I, yet. I figured that would have been on Ebert's list, but... No, it's not on the Ebert oh, list. okay. Then, nope, can't blame you there. So, Near Dark, though, I guess is my favorite 80s vampire movie. Near Dark is excellent. All right, okay. And it's... Uh, I guess they're getting ready to bring that out on Blu-ray in the U.K., yeah. There was a Blu-ray release a, a few years ago. Oh, oh yeah, it was at every Walmart, and I'm surprised it's not to be found anymore. Yeah, what Lionsgate doesn't keep their titles in very quickly. We've talked in other episodes. There's a lot of Lionsgate titles that still haven't made it to Blu-ray at all. I would imagine that would include a excellent vampire movie in um, Shadow of the Vampire. Um, that was 2001. Could be the case. 2000, I think. Like, I went and saw... I had a friend in high, from high school very afraid of his parents. I'm not going to drop his name, but we're from Morton, AC Town. Right. Apostolic Christians. And, you know, when I heard his dad was Catholic and converted to AC, it was like... <laughs> Whoa, it wasn't strict enough for them. But he went to Western, which is a notorious party college. Right. But every weekend he would come back to Peoria to spend the weekend and usually watch at least two, go out to see two, maybe three movies a week, one mm -hmm. a night. And honestly, this started around 2000 and... Uh, I'm sorry, it started around 2001 and wasn't too bad um, the first few months of 2001 because you had all the Oscar bait. I saw mm -hmm. Crouching Tiger at least three times, saw Traffic, uh, saw, I think, a Gladiator reissue or something during that time. So probably my most, most cultured month in cinema. And then the 2001 movies came out. Yeah, I, and it's interesting listening to screen drafts. Some stuff gets better remembered than I than I do like Valentine almost made their aughts slasher uh -huh. draft Shadow of the Vampire was one of those movies right and it's interesting to say it was 1979's Dracula that first romanticized not, not, not very first, first but all Count Orloff wanted was some love I, I thought it was always a romantic concept no, as people say, it's hard to see va vampirism as romantic when it involves literally feeding off the other. I once heard it, read it compared to, you can't have, it would be like a man falling in love with a cow. <laughs> well, 
Well, and I actually uh, brought that up. I have a coworker at uh, the bank who is a libertarian vegan. So that's kind of a screwy situation. I think, uh, I hate to say it, I think most people want to be conservative. They just have something they're passionate about that they need to see changed. And then they will say, bugger off to progress. Um, I mean, I have plenty of friends who are very much about gay rights, but once they got marriage, it turns to, now give me my guns. <laughs> and it's like, no, 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 you kind of have to, I don't want to say there's, you got to be one or the other, but if you're looking, you know, it shouldn't be about having your guns, it should be about how to make sure people safely have guns. I was telling my coworker when I was explaining that, the new coworker, about her attitudes and stuff, being a vegan libertarian. Like, you know, he says that's weird, and it's like, yeah, you see, I can't do veganism because I need the concept that something has died for me. It's the closest thing I get to be to being a vampire. The chicken nugget. <laughs> Dare I say, I think I can love a chicken nugget. Definitely a chicken wing. Actually, that plays into my favorite, one of my, uh, the only other watchable Lost Boys movie, which is Lost Boys The Thirst. Mm -hmm. where we find out the person that hires Edgar Frog to go and kill the vampires and save her little brother is basically Stephanie Myers. And she goes off about how, oh, you're like, oh, you've heard of my books. Yeah. You're a fan? No. You make vampire. There's nothing romantic about being a blood sucker. So there's a nice, it's plenty of comedy, which I think is what bring either brings you to the Lost Boys I don't know I guess it would be the comedy because it's not necessarily a scary movie so if you're not into all this juvenile humor dare I say I can see where it uh, there's a disconnect while Near Dark is I don't know is that one of your classic puberty and and you know growing I mean at least adolescence stories no I think it's more adult than that it has more I would think it having more in common with the, the film Catherine Bigelow did just a few years later with Point Break in terms of an outsider being somewhat against his will, conscripted into this group of outsiders that seems likable enough, but is extremely dangerous. There's a lot of, there's a surprising amount of parallels between the plots of the two movies in that regard, especially oh. given the wrap-up. Mm -hmm. Well, you can find her at the Poetic Critic on Letterboxd, so uh, you can definitely trust her experience with cinema. I mean, if you look at my profile, I'm still trying to cut down that um, five stars being at 22%, which means I just have to see more movies, honestly. And uh, Rory is far more willing to give anything a chance, I would say. I mean, she might not be up on the modern features, but, I mean, it's a different Hollywood now. I mean, she's, she's basically been around to, you know, the only thing we really missed was the renaissance of the 70s. You know, we both pretty much have seen how, basically, it's all been monopolized. I think you'd agree with that? Oh, no. Looking back at 80s movies, as much as the corporate hegemony did firmly begin in earnest in that decade and squeezed out some of New Hollywood's creativity, there's still a lot more interesting and varied stuff coming out of that decade than we seem to be seeing now, at least as far as mainstream movies goes. I mean, 19, in a 1984 alone, in that December, you could have gone to a multiplex and seen Dune or Mickey and Maude or 2010, or Beverly Hills Cop, or Johnny Dangerously, or uh, Breaking 2, Electric Boogaloo came out that month. This was one of the things I liked about 80s all over, was that it had that more clear-eyed view of just what was going on at the time. That's uh, 80s all over, 8-0, apostrophe S all over, if you're going to be searching your podcast apps for that one. Uh, there's no apostrophe. There's no apostrophe. Okay, well, that's... that's no, a... you put the apostrophe before the A. That, that's how that works. Oh. No, you're, you're right, you're right, you're right. Sorry. I don't know. Podcast apps don't usually read apostrophes anyhow. And 
when you're looking for 90 for chill, it's all one word on iTunes and most apps. I just, uh, but trademarks aren't too pricey, I guess, maybe. I just don't want to end up like stopping this podcast and somebody goes Herb Abrams on that. Uh, it's for my wrestling fans. Herb Abrams started the UWF in the 1990s. Now there was a UWF in the 1980s, but they failed to actually trademark UWF. So you got this little short Jewish guy who ends up running his business into the ground, doing what he loves, cocaine and hookers. That's an excellent dark side of the ring. I mean, it just sounds fun. But, okay, so 84 was a pretty clear year. I don't know. Then would you say it was a VCR, though, once that really became prominent, that kind of, like, I would say in the 90s, like, there was, you had two real movies a weekend going head-to-head, like, uh, listening to the um, Cinema Snob, uh-huh. Which really tells me I just gotta move my ass up to Chicago land. And all the all the cool internet guys are up there. Of course, you got those guys should realize that the internet started in Champaign. But I'll digress. He was talking about seeing Judge Dredd opening weekend, which I think I did too. Mom wanted to see Armando Sante. Wonder if she's ever seen Grizzly. That's that's what immediately makes me wonder. But she said the. Brad, the cinema snob, basically said he saw it with his dad, but his dad asked him. So, opening this weekend, Apollo 13 or Judge Dredd? Oh, we're definitely seeing Judge Dredd. And in his defense, I have not seen Apollo 13, so take that for what it is. Maybe I'm disqualifying myself. We both agree Spiral is a B. That's one of those weird ones, like... Allie was, uh, bought me a new co- a copy of New Mutants, forgetting the second episode of this podcast that I already reviewed it, but I figured she would like it, because I liked it, and she did, And but I did give her a heads up before she was going to watch it, I might be in the minority, and then she asked, well, I ended up liking the movie, what was uh, wrong with it? And I sent her a text message back, and... You know, I really can't question everything that I wrote down in this text, which I've picked up from critics. Lack of character chemistry. Not a lot of mutant stuff. Poorly directed and marketed. No real death of any characters. No stakes. Not a good fit to the franchise. Nothing memorable. But I still liked it. (laughs) Which is kind of like how the cinema snob gave a B to Spiral from the Book of Saw while his, uh, co-reviewer Doug gave it a D while Brad said yeah I can't disagree with anything that you you have said in your D review 80s movies and vampires really so you got near dark I don't know I didn't take the time to look at it uh, yet but um once bitten not once bitten once bitten is fun I don't I think I'm sure you saw once bitten I haven't got around to that yet well, you, you had work a, at working on. Well, yeah, but you had a big Carrie, Jim Carrey period. Yeah, in, but in the mid nineties. No, um, it was the turn of the millennium more than the mid nineties, but well, that was one I still never got around to. Well, I mean, you were, I think, had the same love for the Riddler from Batman Forever as expressed by the professional wrestler Cody Rhodes, who had to spend five years portraying the character of Stardust basically doing the same and he said no that's my sole inspiration for the character but it wasn't one spin i was thinking of it was a the very tan vampire george hamilton love at first bite Bite. from 79 yes was that one you've ever seen there uh i vaguely remember it was on cable a lot as a kid but i never Mm -hmm. watched it stem to stern yeah well i mean tan vampires just don't last too long anyhow. There's a professional wrestler again, Gangrel. And uh, I'm sure it wasn't the wrestler Chris Hazard that I traveled a bit with in Peoria um, who brought it up, was the first to bring it up. How does it work being a tan vampire? (laughs) Great, kid. You just spoiled 10 years of my gimmick. I don't know. You've been catching up on 80s movies and we weren't prepared for a vampire talk. 
other ideas though I've come up with for the podcast, and this again goes back to uh, more of Lee McCobb. I think you're getting enough love, me pushing you. They do an excellent episode on the 27 Club, and I will say their Benoit episode serves the person of Chris Benoit well, just not the wrestling business well. That's all I said. Did not need a five-minute rant after you talk about the 27 Club. You were familiar with the 27 Club, correct? Yes, I've heard of Thank you. So, but they kept on doing Dewey Cox jokes at at one point. That's like, great, so I got movie about fake music comes to mind like UHF that never gets enough love on this podcast it's an interesting dynamic between mom and dad because it's like I think dad actually watched UHF before he let us watch it since it was a PG-13 rated movie maybe I don't know well he just put it on for like I got this and put it on for us and while mom hated Weird Al I think pretty much but it's funny, I was at the uh, diaper party for our little brother who's expecting a kid, I think, in a couple months. He was trying to expand our musical taste. I mean, not the R as in, the royal R as in the bar patrons. And started playing Don't Pay the Ferryman. Yeah, Christopher. But, yeah, I don't know what's more scarring, the overplaying of Moody Blues or Christopher really just very much being overt about his storytelling in songs. Hmm. I mean, it's not movie-related unless Lady in Red, was that an 80s movie? No. Okay. I thought there was something with Gene Wilder. The Woman in Red. Yes. And that's the one with the Stevie Wonder soundtrack. Oh, okay. But uh, we were talking earlier about uh, John Waters and eating dog poop. That just happened beforehand. I don't think there's anything about that. Rory explained the scene pretty well. They were talking about pink flamingos. And I think it's just the fun of making humor ridiculous. Like, you know, you take something very simple, which might make you chuckle, and then you just drive it over the top with appropriate music (laughs) and patience. Any other examples from cinema that you kind of... Like, I know Monty Python did it plenty well. Like, ending the entire scene with the guy who explodes from eating with the wait, the um, may, the person cleaning up the mess. But at least... Russ. No, I'm just, I'm leaving it there, but just taking it to a new extreme. Well, absurdist humor is very hard to pull off. There, for any movie that can get it right. There's ones that don't get so far. Um, I've seen the Mr. Show movie Run, 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 mm-hmm. and that makes a go of this sort of thing, but doesn't get there. Mm-hmm. Um, I can kind of, I can see why it wound up getting buried by the distributor. Mm-hmm. I just find it very interesting because you showed me uh, Criterion Channel's trailer. Yeah, they're doing they're doing a John Waters program this month. Yep, because they have a few films in the collection, and thinking about stuff that comedies that go for service humor. I think one problem it now is that a lot of it does end up being more unpleasant than funny. Hmm. I don't know. I mean, Borat, I think, pretty much nailed it. It's hard to talk about this sort of things because we all have our reputations to protect. Okay. It's hard to describe these sort of things. Well, um, I didn't expect you to lead me into trying to explain this, but it's hard to do that and keep something like this PG-rated, or at mm. least PG-13. Yeah. But... No, it, no, I think it's... No, it's just at this point just coming up with stuff um, to talk about. I mean, look at Mel Brooks. I mean, yeah. I don't know if you'd say he's totally absurdist. Blazing well, Saddles is definitely one of the most absurd <laughs> comedies, I think. Like, never, like, you can start with the, you know, the Hedley Lamar stuff and then, right. then his speech where he's trying to have Slim Pickens write down everybody he needs right. to and it's but fun to watch it on pay TV on regular cable just because you see which ones they cut out. I don't. I think he's more meta than absurdist. Mm-hmm. When he does go into that mode, especially the final stretch of Blazing Saddles, he's very good at it. Mm-hmm. 
Now, would you want, with that being said, would you have wanted to see Kubrick go as absurd as he wanted to go with um, Dr. Strangelove? For those who don't know, as originally scripted, there was supposed to be a giant pie fight as the finale of Dr. Strangelove. And it was shot. But it was decided it didn't really fit the scene and also... The film was going to co- ended up coming out not long after Kennedy had been assassinated, oh. JFK. Yeah, they thought it might see the timing might be off. The line in the scene where Slim Pickens runs down the the emergency supply kit had to change the line. It was a guy could have a great weekend in Vegas with all that stuff. It was originally supposed to be Dallas. He had to reloop oh. the line. <laughs> well, you know, truth be told, I've never really heard that about Dallas's reputation that way. So I think it really works out better. Right. But, no, by all accounts, the pie fight ending just didn't work on the whole. And they found, I'm told it was, it was a genuine absurdist comedian. Spike Milligan, who was a very close colleague of Peter Sellers going back to the days of the Goon Show in the 1950s, yeah, who suggested the ending they went with, the uh-huh. We'll Meet Again ending. Mm. This is how I remember it anyway. Okay. It's been a long time. Now, by all accounts, that the pie fight just didn't work as well. And between that and the timing issue, it wasn't worth trying to push. So, when it comes to absurdist, then, uh, would that be, I guess I'm just, it's good for me to get boundaries, and the poetic critic knows how to set those up. (laughs) So, um, what would you say about pre-Annie Hall at Woody Allen? I like uh, the the, uh, early Woody Allen stuff in the vein of Bananas or Sleeper. Mm, That... But I'm just saying that is that more absurdist? Or, yes, or, it is. Okay. It's been almost random sometimes. You see, I've seen Bananas. I have not okay. seen Sleeper. Um, I love... I, I had plenty of fun with everything you wanted to ever know about sex, but was afraid to ask. Yeah, the early ones do edge closer to absurdism. The way the plot's work out can feel almost random at times mm-hmm, definitely going bananas. back to uh what's new pussycat which was his first screenplay mm. uh well he wasn't happy with how it worked out but it's very but doing absurdist comedy is a very hard thing and i think too often it does get conflated with vulgarity and it can be used well yes john waters is proof of that and but he could but a lot of it's the attitude which was why Waters was able to do milder films later in his career but that have the same kind of energy to it oh well I mean I mean looking at the uh, original Hairspray Mm -hmm. there's stuff there that wouldn't it's PG rated but there's stuff there wouldn't be out of place in the earlier films yes I mean well I mean I, I haven't seen uh, either Hairspray, but Crybaby. Yeah, Crybaby is pretty much the spiritual successor to Hairspray. Right. So if you like one, you'll probably like oh, the that's, other. That's good to know. Um, but I guess we could transition that to absurd, as in just crazy performances. And, you know, if we're going to talk about one Hollywood blacklisted person, Woody Allen, what about your Johnny Depp? I mean, he pretty much... I mean. I think he thought for a moment he was Brad Pitt before he was Brad Pitt. Brad Pitt gets pretty much now equated to being a character actor who just happens to be the sexiest man alive. Well, Johnny Depp kind of had that streak started once he did... Johnny Depp had that legitimate streak from the 90s onward, starting with the fact he was willing to work with people like John Waters and Tim Burton. Because remember, Crabby maybe and Edward Scissorhands were the same year. Oh, you see, I didn't didn't remember that. Yeah. They were released a few months apart. And... I mean, Ed Wood, obviously. Right. He was someone who understood camp and did it well. Mm-hmm. But around 2010 came the huge drop-off, and when you hear about what his personal life 
started sliding into around that time. It's not surprising that things were going to go downhill. When you're associating so tightly with people like Hunter S. Thompson and Marlon Brando, you're walking on a fine line. You can't have both. Let's let's just I, I think I'll say that. I mean John Cusack, I don't know many Brando stories with him. Bill Murray, same thing. Like you can only travel in a convertible with a blow up doll with so many people and you just can't have Brando. Um, I I was having a discussion with uh mom earlier it was uh, about um, something about Native American uh, nah, we're genealogy stuff and I think it's better to avoid that for my sake <laughs> let's just say listen to your DNA test let's see we've done vampires a little bit we've done absurdist humor a little bit I don't know how much of this you're going to find usable I don't know what the rest well, of this it, it, episode's going to be like well I don't know it's pretty much you know we're, we're at the 35 minute mark and no, we're just um, it's it's diff it's going to be more difficult having a title for this than anything. What but if you run into somebody later this week you want to do an episode? Well, you it's going to you could just do the greatest hits. Yeah, no, I could probably split this up into like two YouTube videos at fifteen minutes apiece or so. You know what did fascinate me and kind of alluded to it was that you've been watching a lot of eighties movies recently. Yeah, and. As it, it, we, we've all pretty much determined that is a weird time when it came to running time. I think we've talked about it with the Ivan Reitman, Harold Ramis, Bill Murray um, episode about how Reitman and John Landis pretty much said, no, if there's funny stuff, we're going to film it all. Ghostbusters, I'm about to say, is a perfect movie, but uh, obviously Stripes and even Animal House weren't. So it's just basically, you said the movies you've been watching not necessarily fit in the uh, parameters of 90 for Chill. What do you think really happened, in your opinion, I guess, and when it came to why we decided to just, you know, go from, what is it, 12 minutes of reels? So, you know, 8 reels to 10, 15, 13 wheels. I don't think the real length has anything to do with this. What is interesting is why movies were shorter in the 80s. Yeah. I think it was Tasha Robinson who was writing for the uh, AV Club website who said it could have been the influence of MTV, could have been just theaters wanting to get more shows in a day, but there is, there are a lot more 90 to 105 minute movies in the, in the 80s than in the surrounding decades. I mean, you do sometimes get titles that run significantly longer, especially anything that was being positioned as Oscar bait, you know. Well, If you're going obviously. to do an epic historical movie, it's almost a given you're going to end up going past two. But otherwise, you have a lot of substantially shorter movies. Well, I find Oscar bait really interesting because let's go back to Woody Allen in 1977. Right. Where his sub 100 minute movie wins the best picture oscar mm-hmm. which it's definitely a five-star movie but I, I i wouldn't put it ahead of star wars i just think star wars is a more complete project than and you know what let's just throw jeff goldblum in here for a quick quick gag or pulling the uh ah i can't remember the name of the author when they're discussing when he's waiting in line at this film and don't you don't you Martin, wish Martin, really Martin um, Marshall McLuhan yes yeah I you don't know anything about my work and I do not understand how you have a job in academia don't you wish <laughs> real life is this way or the animated bit with right. the uh, <laughs> um, I guess it's like maybe Annie Hall is the perfect Woody Allen movie just because it's kind of a nice little transitionary piece. It's certainly the transitional film. I'm. It's not my favorite. Hmm. I don't know if I have one. Yeah, well, I, I'd say... I don't know, that or Bananas. Because I just... Howard Cosell commentating an assassination is just just gold. But nobody nobody really comes out good from a Woody Allen movie, now that you think about it. You try telling, kid, you try telling these young kids today about... Uh, the wool-like drinking scene <laughs> from everything you wanted to know. 
That just ruins Willy Wonka for them. <laughs> well. Don't even get me started. I, mean, I just want to save these kids. Don't even get me started on hear no evil, see no evil. <laughs> and that has Kevin Spacey, so it's really, like, gosh. It's, it's huh, now, I, now I kind of, saying all this kind of makes me wonder, maybe we are being too harsh on these t- douchebags. I mean, I, I've, I've had an argument with, um, well, about Michael Jackson, since we're talking about Woody Allen, like seeing that, seeing, seeing what I saw from his, uh, leaving Neverland, yes. and it's like, eh, you know, I kind of believe the victims in this case, but um, my libertarian vegan friend at work, uh, like, no, it's all like either way, Michael. Once you screw up, once you go to court once for this. I'm sorry if you didn't do anything. No, just don't let boys in your bedroom. And then I'm gonna. It's kind of like, well, about face. I really need to watch the Allen versus Pharaoh documentary if I'm gonna be fair. Do you think we've become too judgmental, or do you think this is kind of a necessary reckoning? Like, I don't want to see people not be able to work, um, except maybe Louis C.K. because you bounced back the wrong way, buddy. Going on from. Yeah, I just got myself me too, and now I'm going to talk about how, you know, they weren't really victims in Parkland. Do you think that's going to help our um, entertainment business? Because I think in the end, maybe it will. Well. Or do you just, I, I, I'm just, I've always been like, it's a dark time, and people say, well, you can't make jokes about anything now. And it's like, no, you just really have to be smart about it. Um, so I'm hoping for smarter entertainment out of this i'd like to think so but a lot of people don't don't know how to do it one thing i've noticed on film twitter is there is a lot more sensitivity that is sometimes applied in the right places but sometimes not there it such as this need to for people to agree with whatever messaging they see a movie is having and not it's come to the point where some people don't seem to want characters to be making any wrong decisions. Which totally fails. A character has to make wrong decisions. Right. Like, they want their the entertainment they consume to have the same morals that they do. But art is as unique as a fingerprint and as unique as people. It's very hard to find something that lines up perfectly with your worldview. And it wouldn't be very interesting if it what that was the case. Now you have to think outside your comfort zone if you're going to appreciate any art medium. Right. Well, that kind of goes into um, dare I say the concept of critical race theory and the sense that I think we you know we it's kind of I guess we we kind of need stories told from from the people of whatever their background is. And we have to stop and listen to said story, and not and then. But I think you're right. Where we don't, we want everything to be uniform in a sense. We don't want to have problems with people, or we don't want to be told that we are problematic. I guess is so. I don't know. Do you think the audience is film Twitter just going to be a bunch of bitter people trying to control a narrative, or? Do you think maybe we'll come out on this as, you know, dare I, you know, just like wiser if we if we just listen to the stories and appreciate the stories instead of trying to come up with uh, a uniform sense of morality? Movies are not church. It is, as you said, it's art. Well, the problem that is up as much to the pe- people who create entertainment as the people and the people who distribute it as it is to the people who consume it. The main prob- one of the main problems with the corporate hegemony we have in Hollywood right now, with many of the major and even most of the minor studios, is that it's seen as a zero-sum game. They're, they're only willing to put so many eggs in so many baskets, so it's a lot harder for anybody to tell the stories they want to tell if they don't tow a four-quadrant, all-things-to-all-people line. And you get rather bland entertainment out of that when you're trying not to 
upset anybody mm-hmm. and you inevitably will anyway because of the way the current discourse especially in a place like Twitter works there's a lot of say the colorism issues that in the heights has been having mm-hmm. in that there are valid points to be made that and, I, and I think uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda got ahead of it and just said look yeah I messed up right and part of the problem is that well Rita Moreno are... says you're never going to please anybody everybody so well she didn't handle that well yeah but the point is that part of the problem is that because not enough people are getting opportunities to tell their stories this leaves projects in more of a bind to try and struggling to be as inclusive as possible so no one feels left out it's not that trying to do so isn't beneficial for a work of art but many artists have blind spots so it would be much easier to just have enough roles of projects open to everybody so you don't have to put all your weight on one thing it's like what happened with the Pooh on the simpsons he was once a fairly popular character with Indians and Indian Americans, as he was a he was a fully developed character, a fun character, but because there were never any other depictions of Indians and Indian Americans in media, that it came to the point where he was an albatross around their necks in terms of cultural representation, mm. and he's no long, and he's no longer seen as just an amusing character but is something that does get awfully close to something like blackface or at least enacting a stereotype for the amusement of others yeah well i mean this goes into a lot of um especially the asian community trying to i mean tell their story right now and i know a lot of people are over the moon about uh, crazy rich, rich Asians and now you have actors saying yeah we kind of laid into the stereotypes a little too much on that one despite the fact that it gave you know show, gave a large amount amount of Asians a project but part of that issue is that you're tr- saying Asians as if it's one hegemonist group no, it isn't. It's it's uh, homogenous. I right? Think. No, they they should have called it East Asians or whatever. But that's a lot. That's a far wordier title. Um, we're you now we're walking into the we're we're kind of I guess we're only looking just a preface anything. We're just looking at how people are looking at art right now and trying to figure out how to get over people who are just, I don't want to say overly sensitive, because I think you should be very sensitive about um, your representation. But I think it's more about the keyboard warriors who are just trying to be more woke than the next person. Oh, yes. There's always people like that. Yeah, I mean, as I was saying, I'm trying to tread lightly now because we're two white cis people. And you know, we're just trying to judge the commentary. We definitely should, you know, we definitely don't know everybody's experiences, which I'm saying is, and I think you agree, I think we'd be better off if we got to know everybody's experiences instead of trying to not offend anybody. So I guess we're kind of desperate for more independent film then to come back to... It would be nice if there were more of a thriving art scene in the United States in general, but I don't think that's going to happen. Mm. We have the government has traditionally never been very supportive of the arts in this country. Yeah. It's been that way for decades. It, well, I would probably say what? We have um, a few playwrights and Mark Twain. I mean, um, we've got some great commentary. Um, the guy who wrote The Jungle, I mean, obviously Orwell, 84. I don't know. There's a it's, it's interesting being an American, because it's not... And I can see why... Why are you bringing George Orwell into this? Well, no, I'm just saying in terms of he, great he author... He an American. Oh, so okay. Well, see, I blame the education system for just saying, oh, Orwellian. No, it totally makes sense that he wasn't one, but I'm just trying to... Upton Sinclair. See, it's coming to my mind, everything. 
Um, but I'm just saying we're not, we've never been a very artistic country to begin with it seems. Like the 60s was pretty much our peak in a lot of ways with Warhol. And that's still more of a commentary on what is art. So we need more art, but we're not going to get more art, I think is where we're at right now. At this point, yes. I know, we can't, you can't expect the government of the United States to do anything about anything, sadly. So we're not going to get more art in school. So I don't know. I mean, Pixar, well, even you brought up that Pixar is more of a capitalist interpretation of imagination. That was not my not your idea. Not my idea. We were just, I was just mentioning that this was being discussed on Twitter. Mm -hmm. So what would you say to the mouse to make things better? There's nothing I could say that could make a difference as a consumer or even someone who creates in their spare time. Mouse or Disney is the Walt Disney Company as we would properly call it is going to go where the money is. They don't have any qualms working in places like China. I can't see that and they've been very slow to try and diversify what they have, be it the Marvel movies or Star Wars. So I think you're pretty much of the opinion, aside from their animated features and however they can expand upon those already established IPs, they just, they're not doing anything for originality, really? No, they only have occasional original concepts anymore. I mean, they're... Next animated feature in Kanto is an original concept, but I think they've become too beholden to the formulas that work, and there, there are tons of videos online that go into this further than I do, but if any company is going to keep reinforcing a capitalist mindset and try to be mi- completely middle of the road, it's Disney. And people are plenty happy to vote with their wallets for more Marvel movies or Star Wars. So there's no incentive for them to meaningfully change. Well, I'm going to say this, though. I've been enjoying the Marvel TV series they've done so far. um, And it's like, I'm kind of cool with them just spending television money right now. I mean, I think I've still had too much Marvel for the last 23 years. I, I want my Star Wars movies, but I don't know. And with that being said, do you, if Black Widow doesn't make its money, which it's difficult to make money anyhow. I mean, Hitman's Wife's Bodyguard was the top movie this week with $11 million. If Black Widow doesn't do anything... Do you think we're going to see a change and probably the end of cinema as we know it then? No, you can't, couldn't put that strictly on a movie like that, not only because we are coming out of an, a unique situation with the pandemic having affected distribution, but there's also the fact that Disney planned so far ahead that they have a whole bunch of more movies and shows to work through with Marvel alone. Yeah, but they've that gone. They can't and, go back on now. Yeah, but they've gone and pretty much pumped the brakes on my Star Wars stuff. They're still doing plenty of Star Wars. Yes, but I'm just saying it's all television now, really. Like, I don't. They feel that streaming is where the money is well, right now, mm-hmm. far more than theatrical. Okay. That's part of their thinking. They announced that last year when they weren't. They did the big run where they were announcing all these different projects. Mm. And with the movies, I don't think they want to repeat the problems they had with the sequel trilogy and Solo. I mean, it's been pointed out, they haven't really done much with those universes since they wrapped them up. Merchandising has been pulled pulled back from newer characters. I'm upset that I can't buy my Ray lightsaber. Ray's lightsaber is not Luke's lightsaber. Ray's lightsaber is the yellow. Is basically looks like a piece of junk, but it's a it. It's our it's it's our piece of junk, people. Um, which does bring me to this, and I think we can close her out. Um, and you liked it on Facebook. Something you did catch from my Facebook feed right. when I talked about leaving Saw and Spot Book Spiral Book of Saw. Which I brought up to you is like, I think the problem is that we, when you have, when you play a cop character, you're stuck playing the, you should be stuck 
playing that cop character. Murtaugh should have been fighting Predator, not whatever his name was. It would have been great to have Riggs there, too, but maybe it would have been too, too tough for the Predator in that case. But Chris Rock definitely should have been his cop from Lethal Weapon 4 in um, Spiral. I don't remember any of this. No, I briefly said it. And we're, we're doing this after you got off work, so... Right. But that thing you liked was about how I've found that I found a, a a couple of people now who like just like newer stuff and when they see it they attach themselves to that more than the original classic stuff. Like I know people now who appreciate the sequel trilogy and they're not kids. Like everybody excuses right. the prequels because they can't you know, oh that's a generations Star Wars. Right. But now we're not to that point. Like, I don't know if it's just having, you know, maybe Ray is now paying off. And, like, given some time, like, the prequels are given some time. They might, the sequels might be able to do something again. Um, because there's an audience for it. People liked Ray and related to her. There might be down the line once Disney exhausts the more profitable concepts. So, yeah, so it's basically Disney's just going to keep doing what they're doing until the stock goes down. Yes. Oh, that's kind of sad. Disney has no incentive to change right now. It's that, that big of a company. I don't... And I, even if... Black Widow doesn't make money. It's not like any of their recent releases are making huge bank. The market just isn't set up for anybody to do that. Well, it's an looks issue like it's of okay, but... it's an issue of managing loss at this point. Okay. And I think they have enough money that they can man they can withstand this. I mean, they had they did see a huge boom in subscribers. I would say that the problems the theme parks had due to the pandemic were probably more damaging to the bottom line. Alright. Well, and you thought you were never going to use that accounting associates for anything, didn't you? Again, the poetic critic. One of the smartest minds on film Twitter. I'm not going to ask you for your Twitter handle because you probably would have said it. Uh, but... If you're looking for the if you're looking for fun movies, go to letterbox slash darth. If you're looking for the wise movies, go to the five star stuff of the poetic critic. If you can find five star stuff, she's tougher than I am. I've had given a few films five stars. No. Um so I didn't say they were necessarily wise though. Well, um, I don't know. I think you're wiser if you watch excellent cinema. You be, you should become wiser. I mean, it goes back to Obi-Wan Kenobi saying the difference between knowledge and wisdom. But I guess my biggest problem with Letterboxd right now is that, and it's not my problem with Letterboxd, it's my problem with you people out there and your top 150 movies. So I went through the first three pages of this. Oh, I could read you this one, right? And then I go back. And check out my profile, and it it lists your films in chronological yearly release, yeah. chronological release. That's the default anyway. Right. Okay. So I go to all right. Let's see how many I really have on this sixth page, this fifth page, and we go from nineteen seventy nine to twelve Angry Men. People, start watching older movies. Make them more popular. Make my algorithm look better. And I shouldn't say 1979. I should say 1972. Thank you, Francis Ford Coppola. So go to go to letterbox.com slash the poetic critic, all in word, and look at what she really likes and start watching those. That's what I should do tonight. I'm probably going to go home and watch, um, let's see, we're at the M's, I think, in the terms of the, no, I'm at the L's in terms of Ali's Accessory Shop on Etsy's Trash Feature Reviews. <sighs> Not looking promising. I'm going to have to say that. Next week, I will do, uh, previously, on uh, 90forchill.com, a movie that qualifies that I find on Rory's Letterboxd page. 
So with that all said, and thank you for just BSing with me for an hour. I know you were fighting off this sleepiness, and I'm sorry to, but you really came through like you always do. You know, you just gotta grab your, drag your friends. It's not that hard to get a podcast going and drag your friends into one. You know, you got a lot of female friends. You just have to make a clever vagina joke in your title, and boom. You know, it's because of this that I'm no. reluctant to work with you. <laughs> Well, no, it's like, I, I just know a lot of female comedians who complain about all the, it's a ladies' night titles, but hey, it gets them in the door. Like, if you get, okay, I digress, because that's, ah, you are a modest creature. But aside uh, from at the um, letterbox.com slash poetic critic, do you have any other way, things you want to promote? Not today. Today. Okay. And, of course, you can find me uh, on Twitter. I know it's a change to at CatBusRuss, but that's where you get most of my writing updates that are also on MainEventOfTheDead.com. I have my zombie screenplay I'm still trying to get out of developmental hell. Or I'd like to say purgatory. You know, be a little bit more optimistic. Um, you can send me requests for a treatment of that pro wrestling zomcom. Um, email russthebus07 at gmail.com or you can direct message me on Twitter as well. So thanks again for coming and I'm sorry, thanks again for returning to the podcast. We don't need any of that other kind of arrival at, on this podcast. Thanks again, and thank you very much again, The Poetic Critic. You're welcome. Can I hear a wahoo? This podcast is protected under the laws of the United States and other countries. Unauthorized duplication, distribution, or exhibition may result in civil liability, criminal prosecution, and the wrath of the tall man. <laughs> Boy!